Unrelated Things. Greetings and welcome to episode number seven of Unrelated Things. Episode number seven is running a little bit behind my original schedule. I like to have these episodes out by Thursday or Friday of the week, and I have actually rolled into the following week on this episode due to some family obligations. But here we go. Time to get this recorded and get this episode posted. Thanks to all of the first-time listeners for tuning in, and thanks to any repeat listeners out there for coming back for more unrelated things. I still don't have any sponsors. It's not something I've focused enough effort on yet. If I did have a sponsor, I would have something important to say about them right here. But in lieu of a sponsor this week, here is another quote that I found on the internet. Give a man a gun, and he can rob a bank. Give a man a bank, and he can rob the world. And that has been online in various places. The place I saw it was a photograph of some graffiti on a wall. I looked to find some attribution for that particular quote, but could not find a source for that quote. It is typically published as anonymous. You can make a donation or find out more about Unrelated Things at unrelatedthings.net. You can provide feedback at unrelatedthings at gmail.com. And you can follow Unrelated Things on Twitter or on Facebook. On to the generalization and gesticulation. And my top pick for this week is a blog. It is called Consumerist. It is at consumerist.com. Consumerist.com is a division of a company that is related to Consumer Reports. But unlike Consumer Reports, which has meticulous product reviews and ratings, Consumerist covers the interactions of consumers with the products and the companies that they consume. This is quite often relayed as the trials and tribulations of the weary consumer as they try to navigate the maze of company rules, policies, and state and federal laws, but also can be the epic wins of the companies and the brands that do the right thing by the consumer, despite the specific language of their ruling policies. Here's a recent story from Consumerist that gives you some sense of what they published. This is one of the feel-good pieces that they published. I think as far as feel-good versus pulling my hair out slants for stories, the feel-good is probably about 20% of their coverage. And the darn it, I'm pulling my hair out because this company is being extraordinarily unreasonable, uh, probably covers about 80% of the stories. So here we go with a recent post from Consumerist. For every case of restaurant owners going ballistic on customers, there are other stories of restaurant staff who actually want to be kind to their patrons. Such was the case in 1997 when a teenager had to borrow $40 from the chef at a French eatery so he could afford to impress his Valentine's Day date. He's since returned 15 years later to repay that debt with interest. The owner and chef of a French restaurant in Albuquerque 
tells KOAT News that he once helped out a teenager back in the 1990s who wanted to impress his date with a fancy Valentine's Day dinner. The trouble is, the kid couldn't afford to pay the check when it came. He could have made a run for it while his date was in the restroom, but instead he asked to speak to the owner and explain that he was short about $40. The owner says he was like, quote, Hey, I have $40 in my pocket. Have it. And he told the kid to pay him back someday if he could. Sometimes things come back to you, he said. You shouldn't do them for that specific reason. You should just do it because it's the right time and the right place, and it just felt good. The years passed, and the memory of that $40 all but faded. The restaurant had closed down somewhere in the intervening years and just reopened last week in a new location. And who do you think was one of the first people through the door? That now-grown teenager with a $100 bill in hand. Sometimes it pays off to be a nice guy, the owner said. It made me feel good. I went and bought myself a bouquet of flowers. So that's a recent story from the website Consumerist where I get a lot of uh, interesting stories, some of which I relay here on the podcast. In fact, this week's Shallow End is chock full of stories that I found on Consumerist. It's always entertaining. It's occasionally enlightening. Check them out at consumerist.com. Roll up your trousers. It's time to wade into the news. And story number one is how hummus is conquering America. This is datelined from Virginia and was found on wallstreetjournal.com. Prodded by the largest U.S. hummus maker, farmers in the heart of tobacco country are trying to grow chickpeas, an improbable move that reflects booming demand for hummus. Growing demand for hummus has pushed up prices for chickpeas, spurring farmers to increase production. The average price that farmers received for chickpeas was $0.35 a pound last year, a $0.10 increase over the mid-2000s. Though chickpeas are a tiny crop compared with others like corn or wheat, last year's U.S. harvest totaled a record 332 million pounds, up 51% from the previous year. The value of the U.S. chickpea crop hit a record $115.5 million last year, the data shows. So there's farmers in Virginia that are definitely looking to chickpeas to replace their traditional tobacco crops. One challenge is that chickpeas are not that good of a crop to grow in the humid conditions that are found in Virginia. So there are a lot of um, schools that are looking into or universities such as Virginia State University that are doing some research and trying to find some varieties of chickpea that will grow better in the environment in Virginia. One such farmer is James Brown. Great name. James Brown, a 72-year-old tobacco, corn, and soybean farmer in Clover, Virginia, said he knew nothing about chickpeas when an extension agent from Virginia State called him several months ago and asked if he would plant the legume. He said he jumped at the opportunity because he's looking for ways to make his roughly 300-acre farm more profitable. So as a test, Mr. Brown planted four acres with chickpeas in mid-April. That same week, his wife served him the first chickpeas he had ever eaten. 
And what was his response? They tasted pretty good, he said. So farmers in Virginia looking for ways to diversify their crops. This happened. And here is a story from consumerist.com written by Laura Northrup. A McDonald's employee may have left her car unlocked outside of her apartment complex overnight. She doesn't remember. That didn't mean that she deserved to have it stolen, though. She woke up to discover that her car was missing. Then she spotted the culprit in the drive through lane at her workplace. She noticed the theft that morning and just before 3 p.m. spotted her own car at the restaurant, then called the police. The 22-year-old woman who was driving the car was arrested and her passenger was released. She also had allegedly shoplifted merchandise from Sears and J.C. Penney in the vehicle. So interesting story there about a employee of McDonald's who saw her own car stolen previously driving through the drive-thru at work. Another story from Consumers.com. A man who lives near, near Chicago stuffed his, all of his old lottery tickets in a cookie jar. Then later on, he would take them to the store to see whether they had maybe won a few dollars by hitting a few numbers. So he did this. They were cleaning out the, the kitchen, and, and it was either time to throw those, those tickets away or take them to, to check them out. So he brought them down to check them all out. And one ticket won $3, so he, he made a little bit of money back there. He, made, he could almost buy a gallon of gas, says the story here. Then another ticket in the pile won more than $4 million. The ticket had been sitting in the jar since February. The Illinois Lottery had not yet launched any statewide search or media blitz looking for who that lucky winner was. In a press conference at the convenience store, the lottery presented him with a giant novelty check for $4 million. It just so happened that at the time the family was cleaning out their lottery ticket stash, they were facing foreclosure on their home. And the player had this to say about that. I just thought this is how God works. So it worked out very well for that gentleman checking out his old lottery tickets and finding a $4 million winner enclosed. I spoke on a previous episode about the competition between New Hampshire and upstate New York over which of those states, or which of those areas, is the Florida of the Northeast. Florida being a hotbed of bizarre stories. But after what I read this week, we definitely have a clear winner. This story also was from Consumerist.com. Earlier this week, a northern New York man was caught doing a terrible, terrible thing to an innocent stick of pepperoni. He was arrested and put behind bars, not just for lewd behavior in public in a Hannaford store, but because they had to destroy the pepperoni he had defiled afterward. 
A local TV station explained that store security spotted the man on a security camera when he, quote, rubbed a packaged stick of pepperoni on his exposed penis. Then he put the pepperoni back on the shelf. Naturally, the store couldn't sell the pepperoni after that, so he was charged with fourth-degree criminal mischief in addition to public lewdness and catapulted this outside the story, catapulted upstate New York into the lead for competition for who is the Florida of the Northeast. One more thing. One more thing in the light side of the news. Not so long ago, Southwest began readjusting the seats on its fleet of Boeing 737 jets getting rid of one inch of legroom for each passenger in order to squeeze in an additional six seats. Your initial thoughts might be that this is a lot of work for just a few more seats, but when you add it all up, you're talking nearly three quarters of a billion dollars a year. Now, airline seat space is pretty tight as it is, but a one inch reduction in space um, is probably not going to be noticed by very many people. And based on that one inch of reduction of legroom for each seat, Southwest can get those six additional seats in per flight. And with 94,000 flights per month at an average price of $140 per seat, and with 80% average occupancy on Southwest flights, Southwest is set to gain $770 million per year in extra revenue by adding six additional seats to every flight. I am a big supporter of Southwest using this method of trying to get more money per flight and not using the method of we will charge you for everything. We will charge you for your baggage and we will charge you for your carry-on and we will charge you for using the restroom as other airlines are moving towards fees for every every little bit of what goes on. They do still charge you if you want to board the plane first, but that's not all that unreasonable um, to, to allow someone who could not get their ticket quick enough to spend a few dollars to get to the front of the line. But let's kind of get all that fun, quirky stuff out of there. Hold on tight. We're headed for the deep end. On to the serious side of the news. Stephen Messenger writes in treehugger.com. No one can say for certain when African rhinos first began to inhabit the forest and plains of Mozambique. But we do know when their reign there ended. Conservationists say that the nation's remaining 15 rhinos were found dead last month, butchered by poachers and robbed of their horns. The horns of the rhinos are very highly prized and very highly valued in the Asian market. 
The endangered animals were discovered on the grounds of Great Limpopo Transfrontier Park, a wildlife reserve along Mozambique's southern border, where rhinos numbered in the hundreds just a decade ago. Authorities believe that park rangers, charged with protecting the rare rhinos, aided the poachers in their demise. According to the Telegraph, 30 rangers have been arrested and are due in court later this month. To make matters worse, rhinos in neighboring South Africa appear headed towards an equally grim fate. So far this year, 180 of the endangered species have been killed by poachers, leaving just 249 rhinos remaining. But it's this kind of stuff that drives me freaking crazy. I spoke on an earlier episode about the Bangladesh factory collapse, and there is more news about that event and another event in Bangladesh uh, from the Chicago Tribune. Eight people were killed when a fire swept through a clothing factory in Bangladesh, police and an industry association official said on Thursday. As the death toll from the collapse of another factory building two weeks ago, climbed above 900. And this number is actually a little bit dated now. And one of the numbers that I saw from the eight-story factory collapse in Bangladesh was a death toll of about 1,200 people, which is just an enormous, enormous toll. Um, The fire in an industrial district of Dhaka comes amid global attention on safety standards in Bangladesh's booming garment industry following the catastrophic collapse of Rana Plaza on the outskirts of the city in the world's deadliest industrial accident since the Bhopal disaster in India in 1984. If you don't remember the Bhopal disaster, the Bhopal disaster was a chemical disaster that happened when some chemicals mixed together at a fertilizer manufacturer and caused a toxic cloud of gas, which just covered an area of a city and sent, you know, thousands to an early grave and sent tens of thousands, most likely, to the hospital with symptoms of poisoning and respiratory ailments from that gas that was created. So the toll from the disaster in Bangladesh is growing. There have been a number of of Western um, clothing manufacturers who manufacture in Bangladesh, some from that specific factory, that have signed on to agree to provide money and resources for the population there. And there have been some holdouts, some people who are trying to go their own way, afraid to sign on to admit any liability whatsoever for the conditions that were there. One of those holdouts is Walmart, who is crafting their own plan and a response. Um, So more coming out of the enormous tragedy in Bangladesh. Let's get deeper into the conversation. 
Okay, on to another story, and this story is from Consumers.com. We are chock full of consumer stories this week, but this is on the more serious side. And it is about ATMs and security and those little plastic cards that you may have in your wallet. There are your everyday ATM skimming schemes, and then there are global hacking operations that allegedly siphoned $45 million from ATMs around the globe in just a few hours. It's kind of like a flash mob, said one former prosecutor, and the ease with which it was apparently carried out has got those in the security world a little bit nervous. According to the authorities, hackers worked their way into bank databases and erased withdrawal limits on prepaid debit cards and made up their own access codes. Then that data would be loaded into any old plastic card with a magnetic stripe, even a hotel key card could work. From then on, it was an old-fashioned heist with operatives spread around the world pulling out money in multiple cities, who would then take their cuts and then launder the rest by buying expensive goods or shipping it to the head honchos in charge of the operation. It almost seems like the group held a trial run first with an attack in December that stole $5 million worldwide. And then the other in February that brought in the big haul of $40 million in 10 hours with a whopping 36,000 transactions. The weak spot the thieves exploited seems to be the magnetic strips on the back of the cards. Most of the world has ditched those cards in favor of ones with built-in chips that are a lot harder to copy. Since U.S. banks still use them, however, merchants still accept the magnetic stripe cards worldwide. And now you're supposed to just go ahead and move on. The story from Matthew Stone, published at uh, sanders.senate.gov, which is Senator Bernie Sanders' website. The main legislature waded into two contentious federal debates on Tuesday, supporting resolutions that call for a constitutional amendment overturning the U.S. Supreme Court's Citizens United campaign finance ruling and urging Congress to pass a comprehensive immigration reform bill. The Senate passed, the main state Senate passed the Citizens United resolution in a 25 to 9 vote in the immigration resolution 22 to 12. In the House, the resolution urging reversal of Citizens United passed by 111 to 31 vote. The resolution in support of immigration reform garnered 88 votes with 55 representatives opposing the measure. The legislature's endorsement of a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United makes Maine the 13th state to pass a resolution calling for the change. I don't have an enormous depth of knowledge on the Citizens United Supreme Court decision, but the gist of it, as I understand it, is that Citizens United granted corporations equal rights to living human beings and said they have the same rights of free speech and that includes the, the rights to donate money to, polit to politicians and whomever they choose to donate to, and just really raise the bar on the so-called rights that corporations have 
And it's, it's always interesting to see the rights that corporations are granted while they are never held to the same or not often enough held to the same standards as human beings are. For example, take that Bangladesh story where corporations likely were responsible for the deaths of 1,200 people. The corporations are not going to be held accountable in the same way individuals would be held accountable um, in the deaths of 1,200 people. So always interesting to see the dichotomy of the corporations gaining rights but not having to live up to the responsibilities that the rest of us ordinary human beings have to. And on the other side of New England, uh, the Vermont legislature had some action last week as well that was notable. The approval of an assisted suicide bill in Vermont brings to a close a 10-year battle in the state over the issue and delivers the third state-level victory for advocates seeking to advance the policy nationwide. Supporters of assisted suicide say it's a rarely used but critical tool for sick patients to take control of their destiny. The Vermont law permits doctors to prescribe lethal medication to patients determined to be within six months of dying. Patients requesting the drugs must go through multiple evaluations, be deemed fit to make decisions, and repeatedly affirm that they wish to die rather than submit to months of physical and cognitive decline. Detractors say medical science often fails to accurately predict how long a terminally ill patient has to live. Some patients, they say, are likely to feel pressure to end their lives early rather than subject loved ones to their prolonged illness. Others worry that the safeguards are inadequate to prevent deadly pills from ending up in the wrong hands. Just two states, Washington and Oregon, have assisted suicide laws on the books, and both of those were passed by ballot measures from the people rather than through the legislative process, making Vermont the first state to have an assisted suicide law which was passed through the legislature. Several states, in addition to Massachusetts recently, have defeated ballot measures that would allow assisted suicide. Because TV is so good. On to the Eureka Minutes. I don't have any other particular TV news, so we'll jump straight to the Eureka News. And the Eureka News is actually dominated by another series. Um, this was, story was published in Deadline.com by Nellie Andreva. Sci-fi has renewed its flagship drama, Warehouse 13, for a fifth season, which will be its last. Production on the final six-episode installment of the series, on which Jack Kenny serves as executive producer and showrunner, will begin in Toronto this summer for a 2014 run. 
Warehouse 13 has been an incredible signature series for us, said Sci-Fi President of Original Content Mark Stern. We are grateful to the loyal and passionate fan base and know that Jack Kenny, his gifted creative team, and outstanding ensemble cast will give them an amazing final season. Saul Rubinek, Eddie McClintock, Joanne Kelly, Allison Scagliotti, and Aaron Ashmore star in the drama, which is produced by Universal Cable Productions. So, why did this land in the Eureka Minute? Well, this really, this story having a six-episode order for a final season of a series brings big flashbacks for me when Eureka was canceled. Eureka was originally renewed for a six-episode season six before Sci-Fi reversed its direction and then canceled the series outright. After pleas from the show's creator, Sci-Fi did grant a one-episode extension for Eureka, which allowed them to tie up a lot of loose ends. The, the news of the Eureka cancellation came as they were completing, they were halfway through filming the final episode of season five, expecting they would have a six-episode season six to wrap up the storylines and the cliffhanger that they had set up for season five. So that one extra episode was very important to Eureka to be able to tie up a few of those loose ends and really send the send the series out with, with a bang. And um, Jamie Paglia, one of the original creators of Eureka, wrote with his team that final episode and it was if you followed the stories about Eureka's cancellation and and or extension and then or let me call it renewal renewal and then subsequent unrenewal um there were a lot of inside jokes in that final episode uh in that final episode the department of defense decided to shut down Eureka and gave them 6 weeks to wrap things up, but then came back shortly thereafter and said, no, sorry, you have to wrap this all up in a week. So uh, some inside jokes such as those um, really targeted at Sci-Fi and their parent NBC and their parent Comcast, who the, 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 the reason that Eureka went off the air, the reason that Warehouse 13 is going off the air is that as series go on longer and longer, there are natural cost increases, and there are often declines in viewership over time. So there comes a point in any TV series where the viewership and the cost of production just come out of alignment, and, and the profit margin gets too narrow for the network to continue to support it. So uh, another link to Warehouse 13 from Eureka is there have been some crossovers of actors. Uh, Allison Scagliotti appeared on a episode or two of Eureka as her character from Warehouse 13. And Neil Grayston did the same in reverse. He appeared... Um, as Douglas Fargo, his Eureka character, on Warehouse 13 in two episodes. Um, one episode called 
in 2010 and another episode in 2011 called Don't Hate the Player. In addition to that, both Erica Sarah, Erica Shara, I think that's actually pronounced, sorry, Erica, and Niall Matter uh, both appeared in the 2009 episode called Duped, and I'm pretty certain they appeared as a husband and wife in that episode. I've not watched that episode yet. I've not been a big fan of Warehouse 13. When it initially rolled out, I thought, well, this is just a ridiculous concept for a TV show, a big warehouse full of artifacts that have various different unique powers. Um, I have watched a few episodes of Warehouse 13, and but have not been hooked on Warehouse 13. It's not one of my must-see programs, but it's a show that's on my list of shows to revisit at some point in the future. And as these shows all end up on services like Netflix, they are much easier to go back and check out. So I'm definitely going to have to go back and check out that particular episode from 2009 called Duped with Erica Shera and Niall Matter um, in them and see how that episode worked out. So be vigilant Warehouse 13 fans as Sci-Fi and their parent companies are known to extend series and then change their mind and revoke that extension. So I hope you get that full extension um, and that your series lives on as long as it possibly can. It's a tech thing. BlackBerry Messenger is a system on the BlackBerry phone that is pretty highly regarded among its users. And BlackBerry today announced plans to make its groundbreaking mobile social network BlackBerry Messenger available to iOS and Android users this summer. With support planned for iOS 6 and Android 4.0 or higher. And this is a story from MacTrast.com by J. Glenn Kunzler. BlackBerry Messenger sets the standard for mobile instant messaging with a fast, reliable, engaging experience that includes delivered and read statuses and personalized profiles and avatars. This is from the press release from BlackBerry. Upon release, BlackBerry Messenger customers would be able to broaden their connections to include friends, family, and colleagues on other mobile platforms. So it's great to see BlackBerry expanding and opening up this connection. In the planned initial release, iOS and Android users would be able to experience the immediacy of BlackBerry message chats, including multi-person chats, as well as the ability to share photos and voice notes and engage in BBM groups which allows BBM customers to create groups of up to 30 people. So some good functionality connecting iOS and Android to a BlackBerry Messenger. Uh, a little bit, I'm just wondering if this is a desperation move by BlackBerry, which whose, whose stock and whose cachet has fallen a lot in the last few years as the iPhone and Android devices have really taken off. It has been in a large way at the expense of BlackBerry. So is this a desperation move? Because this is one of the features that BlackBerry has had 
that has been touted as a significant advantage over the similar types of systems found on iOS or Android. So is this the last gasp or is this a way to cement their existence and their continued existence in the smartphone world time will tell. And another tech story, uh, this from Geekosystem.com by Rollin Bishop. In case you needed a dose of depressing news today, here's some for you. Research site Floating Sheeps built a map of homophobia, racism, and ableism across the United States in the form of geotagged tweets. It's about as horrifying as you'd expect, and this doesn't even include accidental or comedic references to any of this stuff. This map is only a straight-up intentional instances of hate. The map itself gets pretty granular, letting you highlight only certain specific slurs or kinds of discrimination. It goes from some hate to most hate, with light blue being indicating some hate and bright red indicating most hate. This um, project is an interactive map. It can be found on at the URL users.humboldt.edu slash mstevens with a ph slash hate slash hate underscore map.html or search for hate map on Geekosystem or floating sheep and you'll be able to find a connection to that. So I checked this map out. It doesn't get super specific. This is not going to reveal identities of anybody tweeting, but it will give you a sense in your area of the places where tweets usually using intentionally hateful terms are originating. So I zoomed in on the state of Vermont and there's kind of a couple of hot spots in Vermont with homophobic tweets and the words like faggot and dyke and queer are some of the words used to determine hate. And they actually in their methodology went through the tweets and they eliminated the ones that were using those kind of terms but not in a hateful manner. So there are people who will use those terms in other contexts um, and they try to eliminate all of those from this particular survey and just really focus on the ones that were intentionally hateful. So in Vermont, there are a couple of hot spots for some of these things. Um, the homo homophobic tweets have a hot spot on the border with Hanover, New Hampshire, around the White River Junction area in Vermont, which is is near, and I wonder if this has some influence, um, Dartmouth University. Um, so it, it doesn't get granular enough to specify a zip code. It kind of breaks it down to the county level as far as where these hotspots are. Another hotspot well within the state of Vermont's borders is around Middlebury, Vermont, which does house Middlebury College, and I just wonder if there is some connection there. Uh, interesting map, interesting to just poke around and see what in where in your area some of these hateful tweets are originating.
So this week I have a ton of Apple news and Apple stories. So I'm just going to try to rip through them and not take up too much time covering the Apple news. But this will be a big bulk of the rest of this episode. Uh, writing in consumerist.com, Laura Northrup writes, When you visit the Genius Bar at your local Apple store, with a complaint about your portable iDevice, if it's in warranty, they'll generally hand you a new-to-you refurbished device and send you on your way. Apple Insider reported this weekend that for some basic repairs, that's about to change. According to a source inside the company, Apple held a town hall meeting for technical staff on Thursday to explain changes coming in June to the company's after-sales policies, or what regular people call extended warranties. The biggest practical change will be that more repairs such as battery and screen replacements will happen on site at Apple stores instead of giving customers the familiar refurbs. The company expects to save $1 billion by fixing customers' devices instead of handing them new ones. Another change, and this one's more interesting to me, um, according to the site, This could be good news for Mac fans with a messenger bag filled with the company's products. There's a proposed new service tier that would be tied to the user through a subscription instead of to the device through a fixed term extended warranty. So instead of buying an extended warranty for your iPhone and an extended warranty for your iPad and an extended warranty for your MacBook or whatever other piece of equipment that a warranty is available for, you would ostensibly purchase an extended warranty that would cover all of the products that you own and would provide coverage in in the effect that any one of them breaks. So it remains to be seen exactly what Apple rolls out in this sense and whether it is financially a better deal than an individual extended warranty on a specific topic. So I talked a week or two ago about an auction for a meeting with Tim Cook over coffee and the money that that was generating for charity. Uh, The auction has officially ended now on Charity Buzz, bringing in a total of 86 bids and closing at a whopping $610,000. Somebody paid and they have chosen to remain anonymous so far, $610,000 for a 30-to-60-minute 30 30 coffee visit with Tim Cook, CEO of Apple. All of the proceeds will be donated to the Robert F. Kennedy Center for Justice and Human Rights. So thank you, anonymous person, for making such a bid on that auction and donating $610,000 to the Robert F. Kennedy Center for Justice and Human Rights. The EFF is the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Um, And they have done a recent ranking of some of the major companies on protecting your data and privacy. And I don't have all of the rundown on exactly the the ramifications, not the ramifications, the exact um, outline of how they judge the companies. But here is 
a story from BGR.com by Zach Epstein on the EFF and their ranking. When it comes to privacy and data protection, Facebook is hardly thought of as a leader among big technology companies. It should be somewhat troubling then that the Electronic Frontier Foundation has ranked Apple worse than companies like Facebook, Amazon, and Comcast when it comes to protecting your data from the government. The EFF recently released a report ranking 18 top tech firms on how well they protect users' personal data from the government when it comes to knocking in search of to the government when it comes knocking in search of private information. Top performers include Twitter, Google, and Dropbox, while Verizon, ATT, and Apple were found to be among the worst when it comes to protecting your data. According to the report, companies like Verizon, ATT, and Apple don't require a warrant when handing over your data, and they don't even tell users when their private data has been given to the government. They also don't publish transparency reports publish law enforcement guidelines, or fight for users' privacy rights in court. The only thing Apple and AT&T do, according to this particular survey, to protect your data is address Congress regarding users' privacy rights. And Verizon doesn't even manage to do that. So that is the EFF's look at privacy and data protection from major companies and where they've ranked Apple down near the bottom of that particular list. So I talked oh, in the last episode or two about a particular app, and I did not recommend this particular app, but found it newsworthy enough to talk about, and that app was Bang With Friends. So TechCrunch has a story that just came out recently uh, by Greg Kamparak, and this is what how part of that story reads. Uh-oh. Less than 10 days after Bang With Friends made its mobile debut on the iOS App Store, Apple has changed its mind and given it the boot. If you remember from a previous episode, uh, Bang With Friends is an app that does pretty much what it sounds like. It lets you make connections with your Facebook friends and inquire whether they are interested in banging. Um, so what happened here? Back to the story. Did someone higher up at Apple get word of the app and decide to drop the ban hammer? Or could it be something else? Note, for example, that Zynga just went after dating site Cupid with Friends for using their With Friends trademark, requesting that the name be changed. So because Apple does not comment on apps that it kicks out of the App Store, there's really no way to tell exactly why. Was it because of the content of this app and its intention? There are definitely other apps that facilitate hooking up. Um, so it's hard to know if that is the reason why Apple might have kicked this particular app out of the App Store. Or is this something else? Is this some, some method by which the app worked that was in violation of an App Store rule? Or was it the naming convention that 
ran afoul with some trademark like the Zynga trademark with friends. So it is unknown at this point. This happened pretty recently and nobody has any additional information to shed any more light on that particular subject. Oh boy, howdy. So I was in New York a week or so ago doing some work for the company that I work with and there was a pretty heavy downpour and thunderstorm that rattled through the city when I was there. And this story came out um, after I had experienced that particular storm. The Apple Store on Fifth Avenue is one of the most iconic retail stores on the planet. This is the Glass Cube Store um, in New York City, where the above-ground facade of the store is simply a glass cube. Inside that cube is a glass staircase and glass elevator, which brings you down below ground to where the actual Apple store is. I didn't get a chance to get up to the Fifth Avenue store while I was in New York, but it is on my list of things to do at some point in the future. But a leaky roof caused everything to go into disarray at the Fifth Avenue store on Tuesday morning as water poured in. A small leak sent water pouring into the west side of the store around 8 a.m. The New York Post reports that Apple employees quickly went to work on removing the water, and there were only about 15 customers in the store at the time. One worker claims that the water problems probably stem from the construction completed on the roof last year that simplified the appearance of Apple's glass cube. The original cube had many panels of glass per side and last year that was redesigned and rebuilt with three massive glass panels on each side. As part of that reconstruction, I think some of the paving and stonework around the cube was also changed and at least one Apple employee believes that that construction helped lead to this particular flood of the store. So Apple launched its 50 billion app contests a couple weeks ago as it approached 50 billion app downloads and the winner has been announced. 21-year-old Brandon Ashmore of Mentor Ohio won a $10,000 gift card from Apple for being the person who downloaded the 50 billionth app from the App Store. The winning app was Say the Same Thing by Space Inch LLC, a free word game that has been floating around the top free apps list since it was released in April of 2013. So kudos to Mr. Ashmore of Ohio for winning the 50 billionth app download contest. Where are some other pretty good numbers coming out? T-Mobile announced in its earnings for the opening quarter of 2013 and they confirmed in those earnings that they sold 500,000 iPhone handsets since the quarter started. That's a half a million iPhones, not over an entire quarter because if iPhone was not available for the full quarter, it's a half a million iPhones in just over three weeks, which is a really good pace for a phone that's been on the market for several months and has been available at 
all major competing US wireless carriers. So T-Mobile off to a really good start, finally getting the iPhone on their network. During this time period, T-Mobile added 3,000 net branded customers, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it is the first time that the carrier had reported branded customer growth since 2009. An update to some Apple software came out last week. Apple released iTunes 11.0.3. Not a lot of major changes here, but the mini player was redesigned. Uh, the songs view and multi-disc album handling has also been updated. And cultofmac.com published this brief story about the update. Apple just released a new version of iTunes that comes with a couple of unexpected new features. The 11.0.3 update includes a new mini player, an improved songs view, and finally support for multi-disc albums along with some bug fixes. The new mini player view that showcases album artwork much more prominently. The new view is quite a bit bigger than the original mini player view, but you can toggle back and forth between the two if you prefer the smaller view. So uh, a small update to iTunes that came out last week. And a couple stories about the military and Apple. Um, this also from cultofmac.com. Apple's iOS devices have today been cleared for use on United States military networks by the Defense Department, as reported by Bloomberg. The move comes after Samsung's new Galaxy S4 and the latest devices from BlackBerry gained government clearance earlier this month. The Defense Department said in a statement that it had approved iOS devices, including the iPhone and iPad, running Apple's latest iOS 6 operating system. These will join the 41,000 Apple products already in use by the Defense Department. The Pentagon has traditionally relied on BlackBerry devices, which are famous for their security, and it has more than 470,000 of them in its network. But BlackBerry's latest smartphones will now face competition from the Galaxy S4 and the iPhone. The military wants its employees to have the freedom to use commercial products on its networks, and it even plans to create its own mobile app store by hiring contractors to build a system capable of handling as many as 8 million devices. And in other military news, um, for this from 9to5Mac, just as the Defense Department granted iOS devices approval for use on military networks, The Street reports that the U.S. military plans on saving around $50 million through its purchase of iPads. The savings will be mainly due to the ability to cut weight on flights by replacing traditional flight bags and come over and it will come over a 10-year period. Quote, we're saving about 90 pounds of paper per aircraft and limiting the need for each crew member to carry a 30 to 40 pound paper pile of flight manuals, said Major Brian Moritz, EFB program manager. It adds up to quite a lot of weight in paper. Removing the need to print and distribute thousands of flight manuals, however, equates to an even greater cost savings. It comes out to just over $5 million a year, noted Moritz. With fuel savings, it comes out to $5.7 million annually in pure cost. When you look at $5.7 million a year over 10 years, it's well over 
$50 million. Staying up in the air, uh, from today's iPhone.com, it has emerged today that a 2011 flight which experienced navigation issues was disrupted by an iPhone on board. As the plane climbed through 9,000, the compasses on board were disrupted, sending the regional airliner off course by several miles. When a flight attendant realized that an iPhone was in use, the passenger was asked to turn their phone off, at which point the problem was rectified. According to the co-pilot, the timing of the cell phone being turned off coincided with the moment where our heading problem was resolved. Despite calls from passengers and politicians alike to relax FAA restrictions on electronic devices during flights, frequent testing and this incident appear to show that iPhones and other electronic devices emitting radio signals, according to Bloomberg, Quote, government and airline reporting systems have logged dozens of cases in which passenger electronics were suspected of interfering with navigation, radios, and other aviation equipment. Some airlines, such as Delta, have relaxed in-flight rules on electronic devices, despite reporting 27 cases of navigation interference from electronic devices between 2010 and 2012. Four out of five passengers surveyed last year said that they wanted to use electronic devices throughout flights. So interesting story there. This is the first time I've seen any direct connections drawn between use of electronic devices and actual disruption of the onboard navigation systems in airlines. So definitely there have been a lot of calls lately to relax those rules and None of this information from this particular story shows direct proof that the interference was caused by the electronics in question. However, especially that preliminary story where the co-pilot says the timing of the cell phone being turned off coincided with the moment that the heading problem was resolved definitely points to a likelihood that there was some interference coming from that particular device so I haven't like I said I haven't seen definitive testing that says this absolutely is connected but this is the first time that I've seen real solid numbers and cases um, reported where there had been navigation interference which was likely from the use of electronic devices so on to one last Apple story for this episode, and this is, this is, I think, the one that's the most exciting to me, even though it's a relatively small development, but it is the first of what hopefully will turn into a steady stream of network apps coming to the Apple TV. The Apple TV is a great device, but it's really underutilized as far as functionality goes. It's like when they rolled out the original iPhone and it had only Apple's built-in apps. Well, the Apple TV is under that same scenario three, four years after its debut. Um, it still is running only several specific Apple-endorsed apps. Um, there are links to other networks. There are Hulu, there's Hulu and there's Netflix on there, and there's um, some some sport apps which I don't pay any attention to whatsoever. And I think the Wall Street Journal there as well, which I don't 
use either. And there's a YouTube app. So there are some apps that connect beyond Apple's direct sphere of influence, but it's been super controlled. No app store opened up for the Apple TV. That I think is when you'll see huge leaps and bounds happen in the usefulness of the Apple TV, although I find it extraordinarily extraordinarily useful as is, especially being able to beam from my iPad, my iPhone, or my MacBook to my Apple TV and display what is on my other device on my television. But what is rolling out now, and this is a story from TheVerge.com by Jeff Blagden, the CW Network is bringing its shows to the Apple TV with a new app, Reports Deadline. That makes it the first TV network to make its content directly available to viewers on the set-top box rather than through an intermediary like Netflix or Hulu. The network behind shows like 90210, Gossip Girl, and The Vampire Diaries, none of which make me excited for this particular app, will be launching the app sometime in the coming weeks, but no exact release date has been given. The network announced its plans at its annual upfront ad sales event, later confirming the details to Mac Rumors. CW stated that the app would be similar to what it offers on Xbox and mobile platforms. Programming would be ad-supported. No cable authentication would be required, which has been a catch with a lot of the apps that are out there, like the HBO app and Showtime app and other, other similar apps. You must also have a cable subscription to be able to utilize and watch programming on those apps. But with the CW app, no cable authentication is required. Shows will be available a day after airing on TV. The model stands in stark contrast to HBO's own ad-free Go streaming service, which requires you to log in with credentials that confirm your cable subscription. While HBO hasn't made the jump to the Apple TV yet, President Eric Kessler said the company would get there back in February, although now it looks like CW will be beating it to the punch. So, uh, again, a, a CW is not a network that I've been a huge fan of, although they do have the series Arrow, which I haven't watched yet, but have heard some very good things about. So this will be a good opportunity for me to take a look and test out the CW app when it hits the Apple TV later on this year and test it out and see what it provides. So for my podcast of the week, this week I have chosen Amplified. Amplified is a great podcast. It is on the 5x5 Podcast Network. It's hosted by Jim Dalrymple and Dan Benjamin. Jim Dalrymple is the creator and editor of the Loop Insight uh, Apple-centric blog, which has some great information on it, a lot of uh, Jim Dalrymple's takes on other people's writings out there about Apple. Dalrymple is famous for his one-word confirmations or refutations of rumors, and he is pretty reliable. A rumor will come out, and people will look to Jim Dalrymple, and he certainly doesn't comment on every rumor. Most rumors he, he makes no comment on whatsoever. But if a pretty solid rumor comes out there, Jim Dalrymple will often 
post a response to that rumor. And his response usually reads, yep, or nope. And he, he has some pretty good connections because those responses are usually pretty dead on to what is actually going to happen and what is actually coming out from Apple. The second thing Jim Dalrymple is famous for is his beard. Here is a mashup from a recent episode of Amplified.
con- contracts on itself, like moves, like brings its legs or whatever in, 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 inward towards its, its body. At this point, of course, I've realized it's a tarantula. Oh my god! And it just the way it did it, though, it's like like I'm not going to see it or something. Like it's there's just something sick about the way it moved. Well, they must have been like the size of a Volkswagen, isn't it? It wasn't that big. I mean, it's first of all, all spiders are too big. Let's just be clear about that. If you don't like spiders, like I don't. All spiders, there is no, well, that one was okay, that one was small. There are no small spiders if you don't like spiders. And then this one, if you were holding out, if you're an average-sized man and you're holding out your hand, this thing was easily the size of your palm. But these days, what, what we're seeing for rumors is coming from animus. And, and they don't know anything. Oh, wait a minute. So you're saying that the shift is, or, or this article is going to into some detail about it, that the shift is analysts who think they know something about Apple's business cycles and production lines and things are saying, based on the cost of these uh, these parts, based on the supply chain information that I have, and based yeah. on looking at the past three years of release dates, you should expect a new iPhone on this date with that's that's how they're doing it yeah or or they're just you know pulling stuff out of their butt like they like they tend to do and saying here's what we expect and what happens when analysts do that they get written about Mm -hmm. their company gets written about their analyst firm gets written about everybody wants that everybody wants to be in the press so you end up with analysts just making stuff up, mm-hmm. and every website in the world publishing it. But they don't know. The rumors back, you know, six years ago, seven years ago, were a lot more reliable than what they are now. Yeah, this is what people want. They they are waiting outside your door, like uh, you know. Like at a Zen monastery trying to get in. They're standing there, and you just come out and hit them with the broom and go back inside. You never let them <laughs> with the broom. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? When I when I do say something, then people get upset with me and say, no, you're wrong. No. Yeah, and they say, no, like, you're wrong because I believe this rumor. <laughs> okay. You have a very, very good track record with the stuff that, uh, that yeah. you predicted. There's nothing like shrunken speedos. Oh my god. Nothing like shrunken speedos. So that was a mashup from a recent episode of Amplified with Jim Dalrymple and Dan Benjamin. You can check out Amplified on the web at 5x5.tv slash amplified. And 5x5 is the number 5BY. The number five. Yeah, we gotta get some of that. A Twitter thing. Here's my tweet of the week. The tweet of the week this week is from Tom Morello, who is on Twitter 
at T Morello. And Tom Morello is the former guitarist of Rage Against the Machine and is also known as The Watchman, where he does his solo stuff, was also part of the Street Sweeper Social Club with Boots Riley, and I will save conversation about that group for a future episode. Um, so this is what Tom Morello tweeted last week. Quote, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, unquote. Wayne Gretzky. So Tom Morello quoted Wayne Gretzky and tweeted that out last week and was one of my favorite tweets of the week. I'm going to move on now. That people watch it and then it's a thing. I'm not kidding you. So I don't have a bumper yet for crowdsourcing, but it is one of my regular topics here. And so my top my story this week on crowdsourcing and crowdfunding is from blogs.indur.com by Oliver Latello. Latelto. For a few months now, the words crowdfunding and Kickstarter have been on the lips of producers and studio executives all over Hollywood. The tremendous success of the Veronica Mars movie on the crowdfunding platform has seemingly opened the way to all kinds of other projects, most notably Zach Braff and his second feature, Wish I Was Here. But we've always been a little worried that it could be a double-edged sword, that executives would stop rolling the dice on risky projects and simply go straight to the fans to root through their wallets. And lo, it came to pass. Deadline reports that Ron Howard, estimated net worth $140 million, and Brian Grazier, estimated net worth $100 million, were in cans to, re- to introduce their slate for their company, Imagine Entertainment. And among the news is that the duo are planning to use crowdfunding to raise money for the movie version of the TV series Friday Night Lights, that's been talked about for some time. Now, Friday Night Lights is great stuff, maybe the last truly great network drama, but this is always what we've been afraid of. Full-on, inside-the-system folks like Howard and Grazier turning to Kickstarter and its similar properties because, frankly, it's easier than getting a movie funded in a more traditional way. This isn't the first time the idea's been mentioned, but it feels pretty gross for Howard and Grazier to be so upfront about it here. When Veronica Mars did it, it was at least innovative. This just seems cynical. And if you're planning on giving into it, if you're planning on giving to it, we have a bridge we'd like to sell you. So that is the opinions of Oliver Letelto from blogs.indiewire.com. And it's not an uncommon opinion. Kickstarter has, before Veronica Mars, mostly been about small projects getting funded by their fans. Um, But Veronica Mars' uh, Kickstarter project kind of broke that open to some big projects, and big projects that studios traditionally would fund. Um, 
I have some mixed feelings about this. I understand the concern about the shift in focus. And if if there was a, a finite pool of money that crowd funders were supporting Kickstarter projects with, then I would probably have more significant concerns. But the crowdfunding is is wide open. Y- you fund whatever you choose to at whatever level you choose to, and you fund what appeals to you. So the fact that Veronica Mars is sucking in $5.4 million of funding from um, through, through a site like Kickstarter does not mean that there's $5.4 million less of funding that can go to other Kickstarter projects. It's not a zero-sum game. Veronica Mars attracted funding from insiders and outsiders, from fans of Veronica Mars. And it opened the door, and it was probably the vast majority of the funders of Veronica Mars' first time ever donating to a Kickstarter project. And seeing it be so successful... I think would open their mind and open their their and and, and broaden their scope of, of being more willing to fund another project on Kickstarter. So I think at least at this early stage of the game, despite the fact that some of these bigger properties could potentially get traditional funding, I think it's it's not a loss for Kickstarter. It's not a loss for crowdfunding for even big name producers and big productions to test the waters and I see that I see this definitely as testing the waters do the fans of Friday Night Lights are they willing to chip in and and fund are do they desire to see this movie produced so much that they are willing to support it up front I think it's a win I think it also will definitely open the door for some more moderate projects that could not get funding by the traditional methods to find funding to produce movies. And I think that the fans will win and I think that it will maintain and hopefully improve some diversity in the entertainment that is out there. If we only get the entertainment that the studios feel is going to be very profitable, then we're missing out. So the crowdfunding is a great way to get other forms of entertainment, other other types of stories produced that might otherwise not be. And if there are some big stories and, and big budget um, movies and other forms of entertainment that come in and get support in that way as well, at this point, I'm not afraid. I'm not I'm not scared for the crowdfunding system, and I'm not cynical to say you should have done this another way. Let the fans support the shows before they're being produced and not after. Let's show the studios that it is profitable and there is a market out there that wants more of what's been canceled. And I can't wait for the Eureka Kickstarter. So I don't know who's who's up there. Jamie Paglia and Andy Cosby and anyone else involved. Um, you know, let's get that going. Let's fund Eureka. Let's do season six and let's and or let's do a movie. Um, I think crowdfunding is a great way 
to gain support and to raise funds to produce entertainment. That will wrap up episode number seven of Unrelated Things. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode enough to come back again for more. If you have any feedback or suggestions, you can let me know at unrelatedthings at gmail.com. You can find out more about Unrelated Things at unrelatedthings.net or follow Unrelated Things on Twitter or on Facebook. Thanks for listening.